This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. We will be looking at the whole chapter, Genesis 25, 34 verses. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Lumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the, son of, the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried, and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac dwelt at Beer Laharoi. Now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajoth, then Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadar, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedemah. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names by their towns and their settlements, twelve princes according to their nations. These were the years of the wife of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padon Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife, because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. 
So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew. And Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with the same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I am about to die, so what is this birthright to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this evening, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would prepare our hearts to receive it, that we might uh, know and understand not only this history of your people, but also your covenant faithfulness, your covenant promises, and what they mean for us as your people. And most of all, I pray that this text would point us to the hope of salvation in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, we've been away from the book of Genesis for a few weeks, but we come back today um, to an important transitional passage in the book. We are roughly halfway through the book, and it is in this chapter, chapter 25, that we see a major shift in the text from its focus on Abraham, where it has been since all the way back in chapter 12, to a focus on the future generations, on Isaac and Jacob and on Jacob's sons, which will take us through the rest of Genesis, the account of their lives and uh, of the things that they did. So the last time we were in Genesis, we saw how Abraham, through his trusted servant, obtained Rebekah as a wife for Isaac. And with that, the future of the covenant family was secured. That was essentially the last thing that Abraham needed to do towards those ends, and he's basically now ready for retirement. He will live several more years. In fact, it's important to note, when you look at the years that are given in these texts, compared with um, the order in which the texts are presented, you start to realize that the events of Genesis are not always being presented here in chronological order. For instance, we will read in this chapter that Abraham died at the age of 175. And then we see after this that Isaac has sons, Jacob and Esau, at age 60. However, you might remember that Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. So that means that when Isaac was 60 and Jacob and Esau were born, Abraham would actually still be alive. He would have been alive another 15 years after that. He would have seen Jacob and Esau into adolescence. I know you all came to church today because you wanted to do math. <laughs> all this to say, so the arrangement of this chapter and other surroundings, events in Genesis, 
It's not always presented to us in a way that is strictly linear and chronological. It has a certain topical emphasis. It might talk about something and then move away from it and then go back to that something again later. Um, it presents the order to, uh, again, focus on certain people, certain issues, certain topics, and it's not always happening in the order we see as far as a historical accounts. It is a historical account, it's just not always how we think of history being presented. So in this chapter, we see the focus on Abraham wind down and the rest of his life summarized, even as some of the events that come after regarding Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau will still actually happen during his lifetime. Abraham's just not going to be the main character anymore, the main human character. He's not going to be in focus. He's not going to be a point of emphasis. We have heard all about him that we are supposed to. So what this chapter represents is a transition, again, shifting the emphasis away from Abraham and his life and sojourning to the subsequent generations of his family. We see here today the final years of Abraham's life, and what is described of them for us. We will actually see a brief reappearance of Ishmael and some talk about his descendants, and then shift to Isaac and his generation and his descendants, which will again take us through the rest of Genesis. So we'll look at this text today in four points. First, inheritance in verses 1 through 6. We see the final years of Abraham's life. We see that he has other children. But then we see how his inheritance is distributed according to God's covenantal blessings and promises and the terms of God's covenant. Then second, we see interments in verses 7 through 11. Abraham dies. He is buried alongside his wife. The account of his life is over. Third, we see increase in verses 12 through 26. We see the genealogies of Abraham's descendants recorded first those of Ishmael and then those of Isaac. And fourth and finally, we see indiscretion in verses 27 through 34. We see the conflict that is brewing between Jacob and Esau, and we see the even legal and covenantal form that that will take. So again, we have inheritance, interment, increase, and indiscretion. Those are our points for this morning. First, we look at inheritance in verses 1 through 6. We see here in this text, which is situated after the death of Sarah, that Abraham marries a woman named Keturah. We don't know much about her. We don't know who she was. We don't know where she came from. Now, one issue as we look at Abraham's marriage to Keturah is actually the way that this text is presented in Hebrew. It is not clear that Abraham's marriage of Keturah actually happened after the death of Sarah. It could have, in fact, happened before. Some, even including John Calvin, take the position that it was. They look at what the Bible says otherwhere, in other places about how old and frail Abraham was at various times. They say, well, it wouldn't make sense for that old Abraham to be taking another wife and having more children so many say that Abraham actually married Keturah and had these other children while Sarah was still alive. We don't know that for sure. I'm still slightly inclined to think that this probably did happen after she died, that Abraham probably had some 
uh, late vigor and late strength in his life since he lived so long and did, in fact, father more children. But again, that is not certain. Just because we see the events here presented in a certain order doesn't mean they actually happened in that order. At any rate, we see that Abraham did have these other children by Keturah. We also know from the previous episode with Hagar that there was at least some inclination to the sins of bigamy and polygamy in the family. So again, could be that Abraham married Keturah when Sarah was still around. He could have taken her as a concubine. We'll see later in verse 6 that Abraham had children by concubines and that a distinction is made between them and Isaac as the son of promise. Now, this was a common practice in the ancient world, this practice of bigamy and polygamy and the taking of concubines, but I would maintain what I've said all throughout as we've looked at the book of Genesis and we've looked at other accounts from Scripture as well, all of these things are breaking from God's created design. God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman in lifelong union. And so these are deviations. These would be sinful activities. We know this already. We saw this already with Hagar, who was definitely around and was definitely taken by Abraham as another wife while Sarah still lived. We see that Abraham has these many other children. Some of them have recognizable names. For instance, we see Midian. That is a nation that Moses will interact with later. Probably this Midian is the father of that nation. Sheba is another one. King Solomon will eventually receive a state visit from the queen of Sheba. May well be that this grandson of Abraham is the father of that nation which grows to the south. Other names we see here appear in other places in the Bible, uh, quite probably connected to these men here, these sons and grandsons of Abraham. The blessing of posterity and being the father of nations, at least temporally speaking, is not just confined to Isaac and his descendants. We see all the other children that Abraham has also become, at least in earthly terms, great nations. But despite this multiplication of descendants of Abraham through Keturah and also through Ishmael, it is made explicitly clear that Isaac is the legitimate son who receives the full and best inheritance because he is the carrier of the covenant blessings. This is what we see in verse 5. Abraham gives all that he had to Isaac. In other words, his estate, as it was, went entirely to Isaac. Now, this does not mean that Abraham thought nothing of his other children. Before he died, before his estate was distributed, in verse 6, we see that Abraham gave the other children gifts. Given how wealthy Abraham was, these gifts were probably substantial. But it is in verse 6 that the note is made that these children of the concubines were clearly distinguished from Isaac. That would have included these sons of Keturah, presumably also Ishmael, who had already been sent away, though he seems here to come back. Even if Keturah was a legitimate wife after Sarah's death, again, we don't know for sure, it is clear that her children 
as well as Ishmael, don't get the same benefits and blessings as Isaac, who is the son of promise. And we see that these sons of the concubines, they're sent away while Abraham is still living. Now, in a certain way, this does reflect Abraham's obedience to the terms of the covenant. Isaac was the son of promise. He and his descendants were to inherit the land. That meant that the others would not. But it does raise some questions and issues. Again, while it was the common custom of the ancient world for there to be concubines and this sort of second class of children and family, again, this is a deviation from God's created order. This was not how things should have been. In a certain and important sense, it would have been better for Abraham to not have these other women and other children. We've already seen the great strife and hardship and heartache that occurred over Hagar and Ishmael previously. Having all these other sons and then effectively banishing them while technically complying with the necessity of leaving everything to Isaac, it doesn't particularly resonate as sound or godly parenting and family management. Were these other children raised in the knowledge and worship of the Lord? We don't know. It doesn't seem that any of their descendants follow that path, at least for any length of time. As these men become nations, it also increases the probability of conflict, of warfare, of threats to Isaac and his descendants. Again, morally and ethically speaking, it would have been better, and even practically speaking, for Abraham to have not had these concubines and these other children to apply this second-class status to. But Abraham does do this, and yet even this ultimately does serve God's purposes. It does bring about many nations. It does bring about many important things to develop in history, even if it occurs in a less than ideal and even sinful situation. This brings us to our second point. After the inheritance, which is going to Isaac, we come to the interment in verses 7 through 11. In verse 7, we get the final count of Abraham's years, 175. And then in verse 8, he dies. And we also get a line that might strike us as a little strange. It says that he was gathered to his people. We also see another line uh, used to describe the death of Ishmael. So what does this mean, this gathered to his people? Well, for one thing, it is acknowledging the immortality of the human soul. When Abraham dies, he does not cease to be. He continues to exist. He goes somewhere. His soul departs, and it goes where the dead go. In the case of Abraham, it goes where those before him in the faith have gone. We know from elsewhere that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Those who die in the Lord are immediately received into glory where those before have gone. But we also notice in this statement a certain ambiguity gathered to his people. It's true of Abraham just as it is as Ishmael. Abraham was gathered to the place of the righteous, the place of the faithful, the place of those who had been saved by grace through faith. Whereas Ishmael, as we know from before, uh, he despises the promises of God. He's not a believer. He very well was gathered to another people. He was gathered to somewhere else. 
Now, Abraham died about the best kind of death that one could ask for. He died in a good old age, full of years, many more years, 175 than people now live. This basically would be two lifetimes for any of us. He dies peacefully with his family's future dealt with and secured. We see that Abraham is buried by Isaac and Ishmael in the cave of Machpelah, the one he purchased a couple of chapters ago to bury Sarah in. Now it is significant that Ishmael reappears here. We have not heard from him since he and Hagar were sent away in chapter 21. Many years have passed, about 70 years to be precise, given that the departure of Hagar and Ishmael came when Isaac was weaned, so when Isaac was still a small child. One might think that given the circumstances under which Ishmael departed, he would have no interest in coming back on the occasion of Abraham's death. And it seems that none of the other children of the concubines do. We don't see recorded that they assisted in Abraham's burial. But Ishmael, it seems, was not completely estranged from his father, even though he was sent away. We don't know any of the details of this, if they kept in some sort of contact or visited each other or anything of the sort. But Ishmael seems to have enough love and concern for his father that he does come back and do the duty of a son in burying him. And he and Isaac do this together. Now, that too might have been a bit awkward, given the history between Ishmael and Isaac. But whatever there might have been, they put that aside and bury their father honorably, as good sons ought to do. And we see that after this burial, God blessed Isaac, and Isaac continues to dwell at Be'er Laharoi. Again, this is the place where Hagar fled from Sarah so many decades before. There is a bit of irony that this is the place where Isaac now dwells. And so the life of Abraham and the history of it is closed. Now remember, not a strictly linear history. So now we go back in time a bit to see recorded the descendants of Ishmael and Isaac, many of which would have come while Abraham was still alive. So we turn now to our third point, the increase in verses 12 through 26. So first in verses 12 through 18, we get the genealogy of Ishmael. We see that Ishmael has 12 sons, and these 12 sons are princes of 12 nations. They make up 12 tribes. Now this is a parallel to something we will see later with Jacob, who will be the father of 12 sons and 12 tribes. But this is the return of the division, something we've seen all throughout Genesis, between the city of God and the city of man. The city of God is in the line of Isaac. It will eventually be in the line of Jacob. Whereas Ishmael's descendants will be of the city of man. They will not know or worship or serve the true God. This was already proven out in how when, Abraham, or when Ishmael was in the camp of Abraham, he scoffed at the promises of God and despised them. Ishmael will live to 137 years. We see over time a gradual shortening of these lifespans to, towards what we would see as more normal in our time. Then we also see a geographic note. The descendants of Ishmael dwell east of Egypt. They dwell in the wilderness. Now occasionally in the Bible, Ishmaelites will reappear. For instance, 
When Joseph is later sold into slavery, it will be to some Ishmaelites. But in general, though they become peoples and nations, Ishmael and his descendants, they recede from view. But then starting in verse 19, we see the increase of Abraham's descendants through Isaac. Now, practically speaking, things are going to start a lot slower and with much greater difficulty in the increase of the city of God. Ishmael right away has 12 sons and his 12 tribes become nations, but we see that at age 40, Isaac took Rebekah as his wife, and then we see that they have a similar struggle that Abraham and Sarah did with Rebekah being barren. And in fact, this goes on for 20 years. For we see that they married at 40. They don't have Esau and Jacob until Isaac is 60. While we don't get a detailed account of the time in this struggle like we did with Abraham, we do see in many ways Isaac's life and living even some of the sins he will deal with later, paralleling his father's. We see that Isaac pleaded with the Lord for Rebekah that she might have children. He prays ongoingly, repeatedly, and eventually God hears and answers, and she conceives. But it's a difficult pregnancy. Things don't seem right. And we see in this, too, that Rebekah inquires of the Lord. So we do see that Isaac and Rebekah Both are calling upon the name of the Lord. They are both worshiping the true God. Now, Rebecca asks God why her pregnancy is so difficult. And then in verse 23, we learn why. We learn that she will have twins. In fact, God says to her, two nations are in your womb. These two boys will be the fathers of their own nations. Of course, as before, with Isaac and Ishmael, they will be divided along similar lines between the city of God and the city of man. This will come into view later. But we see revelation from God of the two sons in their conflict. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Esau will be the father of a people that comes to be known as the Edomites. And then Jacob will be the father of Israel. Later, his name will be changed to Israel. And the conflict comes into view when the two sons are born, starting in verse 24. So the first son is born, and it is recorded for us that he is red and hairy, and they call his name Esau. Now, he's the firstborn. He's the older one. According to the normal custom of things, he should be the one that would receive the best of the blessings. But as God has already revealed, that's not going to be the way for these two sons. And then the second one comes out, Jacob, holding Esau's heel. We see that these two are fighting, they're quarreling, even in the womb, and even as they are born. In fact, this is reflected in Jacob's name. It means, may he be at the heels. When they're born, we get that time marker that Isaac was 60 years old. He and Rebekah had been married for 20 years before these twin sons were born. You could imagine quite a struggle that they would have gone through, knowing the covenant promises of God, of descendants in a great nation, and yet having no children. But God does make good on all his promises. Of course, now that these boys are born, there will be a new wave of conflict and problems, 
there will be an intense rivalry between them. And this brings us to our final point. After the inheritance, interment, and increase, we come to indiscretion in verses 27 through 34. In verses 27 and 28, we see this conflict grow between the two sons. We see that Esau becomes a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Esau basically becomes the stereotypical manly man. He likes to hunt. He likes to be outside. He likes to do manual labor, things of that sort. And then we see in verse 28 that Isaac has a particular affinity for Esau, probably because of that. He is a manly man. He's a hunter. He provides meat for the family. Whereas Jacob, on the other hand, we learn that he is a mild man. He likes to stay in the tents. We see that Rebekah has a particular affinity for Jacob. For lack of a better term, Jacob is a mama's boy. He's close to his mother. He likes to stay home and do the things at home. Now, one of the problems we see developing here is that the parents seem to play favorites. It has already been revealed by God that the older is going to serve the younger, that Jacob will be the one that is blessed, and yet Isaac still favors Esau. This rivalry between the sons means that there is also going to be rivalry and conflict between Isaac and Rebekah. That will eventually manifest itself in treachery. Now, this is bad. There's some sinful behavior going on here, but God's hand is in all of this. He is providentially ordering the way things ought to go for his purposes. If God purposes Jacob to be the son of promise, then it's going to happen, and he'll even use human sin and treachery as a means to accomplish that. But we also see some gross irresponsibility and sin and rebellion on Esau's part in the final episode of this chapter. In verse 29, we see that Jacob cooks a stew, a red stew, because Jacob likes to stay home, and that means he likes to hang around his mother, and she probably taught him how to cook, and it seems he was fairly good at it. Well, Esau comes in from a hunt, and he's weary, and he's tired, and if you've been out on your feet hiking and hunting and such, you know that that happens. So Esau asked Jacob for a bowl of that red stew. And it is from this that his name is locked in as Edom, because Edom means red. And his nation will be known as the Edomites. Now on Jacob's part, brotherly love and concern would seem to dictate that he should have just given Esau some of that stew. I mean, Esau had been out working all day, hunting, trying to provide meat and such. Jacob should have just let him eat. But Jacob is a trickster. Jacob is a schemer. He decides to capitalize on Esau's weakness, demanding that he sell Jacob his birthright. Now again, based on what God has revealed, Jacob already was supposed to be the blessed son. But as the firstborn, Esau would have traditionally had the birthright. He would have been the typical one who would get the first and best of the inheritance. Now Esau, for his part, he acts rashly and impulsively. He says, look, I am about to die. So what is this birthright to me? 
Now, was Esau really about to die? Probably not. It seems he's just being impulsive. He's being led around by his base desires, including his desire for food. And he's not caring about much more important things. See, the birthright from Isaac is the one that Isaac got from Abraham. It is the birthright in which is contained all the covenant promises and blessings from God. While it is already clear that God has chosen Jacob, this works out in Esau despising the promises, despising the things of God, thinking so little of them that he would sell them for a bowl of soup and some bread. Now Jacob, again, he's crafty. He's a trickster, and he wants to actually make this a legal transaction. He wants Esau to swear an oath to sell his birthright to him. It would be sort of the equivalent of our day if somebody makes a bad deal. You want to get it in writing. Again, for the birthright, for all the promises and blessings of God in exchange for soup and bread. And we get the final ominous wine. Thus Esau despised his birthright. God had chosen Jacob over Esau, but this is manifest in Esau's sin and how he despises God and his promises and blessings. For one bowl of soup and for some bread, we see something set in motion that will impact all of his and all of Jacob's descendants. It will not be Esau the firstborn, but Jacob's line that will carry forth the promises and blessings of God. They will inherit the land. They will be God's people. They will know and worship God. Esau's descendants will belong to the city of man outside of the people and outside of the worship of God. Again, just for one meal. And you might be sitting there thinking, I'm glad I would never do that. Glad I won't sell the blessings of God for a bowl of soup. Well, friends, it may not be a bowl of soup particularly, but people sell the blessings of God, despise the blessings of God for lesser things all of the time. People will say things like, well, I'm not going to go to church where I can worship and be in the presence of God in the place where he has promised to meet his people because I've got other things going on. I could better use my Sundays for something else. Or people say things like, well, I'm going to date or marry this person outside of the faith because that desire is just more important to me than faithfulness to God. Or people in various ways decide that they're going to go along with the godless ideologies of culture, the prevalent sins and evils of our age that are even though they're harmful and destructive and rebellion against God, but they'll do it because it makes their life easier, because it preserves the influence and the relationships they want to have. So again, it may not be soup. There's plenty of other options by which people may despise the blessings of God. This evening we'll be looking at John chapter 15 and how Jesus is the vine, the source of life for his branches, for his people. We'll learn in that that some branches seem alive, they have leaves, they're green, they're attached, but they prove otherwise. They'll be cut off and thrown into the fire because they despise God's blessings. They sell them for lesser things.
So what about you today? There is life and salvation in Jesus Christ alone. We are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus, the son of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, yet perfect and sinless and God in the flesh, to whom all these covenant promises ultimately point, he was given as a sacrifice for sins. Those who repent of their sins and believe in him receive the greatest blessings of all. Fellowship with God, eternal life, salvation from sin and death. Certainly better than soup. Certainly better than all the other things this world has to offer. So the question is, do you have those blessings today? Do you have Christ today? Do you receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered in the Gospel? Or would you despise Him for lesser things? Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this Word that You've given us. And even in it, as we see the history of the family, the history of the people of God, we also recognize that we see in it many things that are sinful, many things that are wrong, and we see uh, perhaps most embodied in Esau how people can be so inclined to despise your blessings and your promises and even your salvation for lesser things. And so I pray that you would guard and protect and preserve your people. I pray that all here would know Christ, would receive and rest upon him as he's offered in the gospel. And that we would be faithful to you, even as the world wants us to turn aside to these lesser things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.